Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 238 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. Well, I want to start off with just a huge thank you. Thank you to all of you. We hear pretty much every day and every time we're on the road from so many of you who just say thank you for the podcast. Glad it's making a difference in your life. It's an absolute delight to do this with you week after week after week. And so many of you have shared, so many of you tell your friends, so many of you discuss this with your team, and so many of you leave ratings and reviews. I just wanted to start by saying thank you. That's all. Makes a big difference. It's noticed. Grateful for you. And uh, today we have another amazing episode. Well, I think if you're a regular listener, particularly for all of you who are subscribers, and of course subscribing is free, I think you know that really close to my heart is this idea about the personal journey of leadership. Yeah, you know, you got all kinds of skills and we bring you lots of that on this podcast. But again and again, I'm going to come back to the personal side, like what's happening in your life. Because if, if things are starting to fall apart or you're going through a tough time, it's really hard to lead. It's really hard to live, honestly, sometimes. And I got to tell you, Lisa Turkhurst is somebody who inspires literally millions of people a day. This is crazy. You're going to hear this theme on the podcast this year, but um, she has six to eight million people a day access her content. Just think about that for a moment. But the last three years of her life have been just upside down. Uh, Diagnosed with two very serious, in some cases, life-threatening illnesses and went through a breakdown in her marriage and fortunately, a reconciliation in her marriage. In fact, the day after we recorded this interview, she renewed her vows with her husband, Art. She uh, showed me via video. Uh, Their house was all set up for the ceremony and you're gonna hear a whole lot more about it. She's got a brand new book called It's Not Supposed to Be This Way. It's a fantastic book. So even if you're a leader who's not used to reading books like this, you know, maybe you stick to your lane or whatever, I would encourage you, pick it up. It's already a New York Times bestseller. Uh, There's a really good reason for it. First of all, she's a brilliant writer. I mean, I read this as a writer and I'm like, okay, I'm in kindergarten. Uh, She's just brilliant at communicating a message. And secondly, it's a message of help and hope. I'm going to be handing out to a lot of people through uh, going through a difficult time. So I think you're really going to enjoy that. Thrilled to have Lisa on the podcast today. It's a powerful interview. And I want to talk to you about what's changing in leadership. So a decade ago, you kind of went to conferences because you would get fresh ideas, top speakers, you know, anything else you can think of. Think about how much things have changed. Now you can download anything, anywhere, anytime. And I get that. And so some of you are saying, well, why would I ever go to a conference again? But you know what? I think the number one need that so many pastors have is uh, they need to connect with peers they trust, with coaches, with mentors, and develop some friendships. Isolation is a huge thing. And even discuss content. Well, that is the idea behind Rethink Leadership 2019. It's a premier leadership event. It's held concurrently with the Orange Conference. Happens in early May, May 1st through 3rd in Atlanta, Georgia. You will hear brand new TED-style talks, interviews from world-class leaders. Uh, We got some usual suspects. I'm going to be there hosting along with John Acuff and Brad Lominick. Uh, We've also got some folks you're going to love to hear from. Nona Jones from Facebook is going to be there this year. Darius Daniels is coming and so many more. We're going to unveil the whole speaker lineup soon. 
This is an event that's exclusively for lead pastors, executive pastors, and campus pastors. Uh, and it's an event at which you'll get some content for sure, but we limit it like 15 minute talks. That's it. And then what do you get? Access and connection. It's a small event on purpose. You get to talk to many of the leaders. They're usually in a green room, not at this event. Uh, they're there to answer your questions. The breakouts are limited to 15 minutes. In fact, we don't even call them breakouts. We call them affinity conversations. 15 minutes of content and then uh, your questions. So I think you're going to love it. People who have been there rave about it and it sells out every year. So go to rethinkleadership.com and get your tickets now while you can still get the best rates. It's May 1st through 3rd, 2019 at the John C. Maxwell Leadership Center at 12 Stone Church. That's rethinkleadership.com. Hurry before it's too late. And I know it's early in the new year. You're probably juggling a lot of stuff. So I got a gift for you. I've got for you for free the exact calendar I use to maximize my impact and my leadership. I get this question all the time. Had it on Facebook Live. How do you get it all done? Podcast, blogging, church, you know, speaking, travel, family. I'll show you how. I'm giving away the fixed calendar template I use for free, and I've included some free videos to show you how I use it. So go to thehighimpactleader.com, thehighimpactleader.com. For a limited time, you can download this resource for free right now. Well, without much further ado, here is my conversation with New York Times bestselling author, president and founder of Proverbs 31 Ministry, Lisa Turkhurst. Powerful story. Well, Lisa, welcome to the podcast. I'm so grateful you joined us today. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be with you, Carrie. Yeah. Um, well, we're going to talk a lot about your new book today because I'm I'm blown away by it, to be honest with you. Um, it's called It's Not Supposed to Be This Way. And uh, I told you I pretty much destroyed my copy. So <laughs> it's dog-eared, well, marked up. <laughs> it's an amazing book uh, for anyone. Thank you. But I want to, well, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say that's probably the greatest compliment you can give to an author is that the pages are well marked and dog-eared and underlined. You know, that's a that's a blessing for me to hear. So thank you. Hmm. Well, um, I want to go back and talk to you about why you started Proverbs 31 Ministries. And I mean, it's it's a it's it's a huge movement for those who may not be aware of it. And I think particularly guys do not understand how big these ministries really are. But I'd love to know your heart behind starting it and some of the backstory there behind Proverbs 31. Well, actually, it was the idea of a friend of mine, and she invited me to help her because she knew that my career experience was in marketing. And so I told her, as long as I never have to say anything or do anything up front, then I'll help you with all the behind the scenes stuff. So I just had my first baby, and I was eager to invest some of that passion, that work passion into um, some kind of endeavor. Well, what's really funny about the whole situation is at that point, I'm not sure that I was even a Christian. I knew what it meant to follow the rules of God and, um, and try to be a good person, but I did not understand what it meant to have a relationship with the Lord. But you'll be happy to know that after being involved with Proverbs 31 for 25 years now, I, I have a very good relationship with the Lord now. And I am saved. So that's good. That'll be a really <laughs> So that is good news. You worked out your salvation somewhere in the midst of that. 
But, um, you know, I think what was so amazing of the Lord is to take the least likely person to be involved with the ministry called Proverbs 31 and to allow me to become associated with the ministry from the very beginning. And yes, I helped build the ministry for sure. And I've been president of the ministry for a very, very long time. But if you were to ask me, who is someone that um, would be a great testimonial for your ministry? I would be the, the one to raise my hand and say me, because being around other godly women, there's something beautiful and biblical about that. And so through being involved with Proverbs 31, I learned how to raise a godly family. I learned how to study the Bible. I learned how to pray. I learned how to pursue your faith with great intentionality and amazing passion. I learned how to fall in love with Jesus. So you know, this has been um, a unique experience that I've benefited as much as I've given for sure. Yeah. And and we have a variety of people listening, obviously a lot of Christians, people who are in professional ministry, but also a lot of business leaders who may not be as familiar with it. So I'd love to know the idea behind Proverbs 31. I know it's almost axiomatic in the church, um, but just so for people who may not know it, and then give us a size of like, the scope of the ministry, because I think people have no idea just how influential this this thing that God has had you built has become. Thank you. Well, um, Proverbs 31, our mission is to eradicate biblical poverty, which sounds like a big fancy term, it, and it is a big assignment. But what I mean by that is a lot of people have physical access to the Bible but they don't have personal access to the Bible. So I want to meet women right where they're at in their everyday practical aspects of their life and bring, bring biblical truth to those places so that I know inspiration plus information um, plus personal application equals life transformation. That's a lot of Asians. And of course, I'm a communicator, so I love things that rhyme, right? So do I. <laughs> But I do see those aspects of we can get inspiration from a lot of places. We can get information in our social media technology driven society from a lot of places. But unless we help people and for me, my assignment is to help you know, specifically women have practical application. That's where transformation happens. And I know that when we impact a woman's life, we impact her entire family. We impact her Um, connection with her husband. So in some ways, we probably even influence and impact him as well. So it's our unique way of fulfilling a very big assignment. But mostly we're passionate about teaching the Bible. And we do that through many strategic initiatives. And we do it around the clock so that no matter what time of day the woman um, wants to have biblical help or insight or advice about something, she has access to us. We have initiatives to go out first thing in the morning, mid-morning, afternoon, in the afternoon, evening, and right before bed. Oh, wow. So those are what, emails or are they uh, just like on your social or how, how does that work? How do you get access? So um, all of those ways, through email promotions, through our social media. But um, one of my favorite initiatives we have is called First Five. It's an app that we just started a couple of years ago. We have over 2 million users for our app. But it's um, uh, the premise behind the app is to give your first five minutes of the day to studying God's Word because it'll change your perspective and how you face things 
throughout the day. We're very strategic in how we use those five minutes. So we give people an opportunity to understand one verse from one chapter from one book in the Bible each day. So if you stick with us for about four years and just five minutes of the day, we'll teach you all the way through the Bible. Oh, that's pretty cool. Now, how many how many people would like interact with your content in, I don't know, a day, a week, a month, a year? Like it's 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 a fairly significant ministry. Yeah, I would say if you added up all of the many ways that we reach out to women on a daily basis, it's somewhere between six to eight million women every day. That's incredible. Six yeah. to eight million a day. I mean, that that is and and again, I've I've had friends, we talked about that before we started recording who like got featured on your show and they were just blown away by the response that they got and the emotional response. So I think, I mean, from a leadership perspective and an influence perspective, that's just, that's amazing. And um, uh, anything else you want to share about Proverbs 31 before we dive into your story and the book? Because I want to spend a lot of time there. Thank you. Yeah. You know, I think sometimes people hear Proverbs 31 and they kind of roll their eyes and think, eh, the perfect woman. But I think it only takes you interacting with any of the teaching that we do or what we put on social media or even what we teach in person. Um, I think just a minute in, in touching something that we present, I think people quickly realize um, it's not at all about being perfect. It's, it's truly about um, being perfectly surrendered to the Lord and letting go of the notion of trying to be perfect, but truly walking in obedience to the biblical model of of what God says to do in situations. So um, I think that people would be surprised at how much we lead the way where our imperfections meet God's great mercy and His beautiful way of leading us um, it, it reduces people's uh, feelings of intimidation immediately. Right. Because, and I'm glad you nuanced it that way because I think when people read Proverbs 31, and if you're not familiar with that passage, it describes a, a wife who, how would you say it, is very virtuous or has uh, certain qualities and attributes that are admirable. And in many ways, it holds up a standard that seems impossible for most people, male or female, to be honest with you, like, it's just like, wow, really, you do all those things, all that. And uh, so it seems like Proverbs 31 is almost this impossible standard of perfection. Um, but I love the way you nuance it to say, no, it's we, we're tackling it from a whole other perspective or angle. Now, one of the things I loved about what you said, and this is a good entryway into your story over the last few years, uh, but in your new book, it's not supposed to be this way. You say, we humans are addicted to outcomes. Um, how does that show up? I mean, as a driven, ambitious, entrepreneurial church leader slash leader, uh, that owned me. I'm like, okay, I'm going to stop reading right now. Um, <laughs> but uh, what do you mean by we're addicted to outcomes? And especially in the Christian world, we seem to be addicted to that. What do you, what do you mean by that? And uh, let's explore that for a little bit. Well, we're very attached to the way we assume that our life should go. And as a Christian, even if life starts to not go the way that we think uh, it should, we're very good at doing God pep rallies in our life where we just kind of go, okay, well, this doesn't at all look like I thought it would, but I know God will work eventual good from this. And that is true. And that is amazing. It's a good biblical principle. 
The problem is then we like to start to craft the script and the story of the good that God should surely make from this hard situation that we're facing. And then we start trying to hold God accountable to the good that we assumed he should do. And where that gets us in trouble is we serve a very creative God who always does have a good plan, but we have to make peace in our heart. We serve a good God who does have eventual good in mind, but we do serve a good God who along the way to get to that eventual good, he will allow hurt in our life. And sometimes that feels very confusing when our faith and our feelings come in conflict. So we start to find ourselves getting very suspicious when God deviates from our script, from our assumptions, and from what we thought the outcome would be in various scenarios in our life. And Carrie, I say this not with a pointed finger at anyone else, but as a personal admission, I know we do this because I do it all the time. And I've certainly done it quite a bit in the past three years. Yeah. Do you want to tell us to the extent, and you're very open and honest in the book, but it's been an unprecedented last three years for you. Um, so for people who may not be familiar with the story, can, can you let us know what you've been going through over these last three years? Absolutely. And, you know, when I say it in the short format of a podcast, it can sound um, void of the deep anguish that um, has been wrapped and woven throughout the very hard moments and days and months and years that this has been. So, but for the sake of time, I'll list off just some of the things that I've been, uh, that I've faced and, and had to really wrestle through. Um, the biggest of which I would say is my husband and I, uh, we've always had a very close relationship. We've always been wonderful friends and in different seasons, ministry partners. But three years ago, um, I found out that he was having an affair and it shook me to my absolute core, um, devastated me beyond what I could even express to people. And, um, and it, it rattled what I assumed was the path and the legacy that my husband and I had built together. So that from that, there was a lot of emotional turmoil and um, about six months into, into that situation, my colon twisted. I wound up having to be admitted to the hospital and spent 15 days in ICU, had to have emergency surgery, um, most of my colon removed. You know, it was definitely a situation where the doctors spent many days telling my family they didn't think I would survive. It was life-threatening. It was definitely life-threatening for sure. But here's the miracle from that story. And I do tell this in the book, but how I knew something was wrong with me, I woke up on a Monday morning and I was in excruciating pain. And so my family rushed me to the hospital. They started running tests and the doctors kept saying that we can't find anything wrong with you, but they could see how much pain I was in. So they admitted me to the hospital to run further tests. And as the week went on, I got worse and worse and worse. So I was in excruciating pain Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I was even on a morphine pump. And even that really didn't even take the edge off the pain. So it was pretty um, daunting because I kept thinking to myself, God, you can do anything. And yet in this situation, you're choosing not to take away my pain. If my child 
were in this much pain, I would surely give them that gift if I could. And you could, you could take away the pain. And the fact that you're not just makes me very skeptical. And isn't that right there where we have a crisis in our faith or trust in God when his promises start to seem doubtful, not for the world at large, but doubtful for us personally, when his timing seems questionable and when his lack of intervention seems hurtful, you know, that's complicated. But Friday morning, a surgeon came in my room and said, Lisa, we ran one last test today and we finally figured out what's happening with you. Your colon has twisted and um, ripped away from the abdominal wall. It's cut the blood flow off inside of you. We have to rush you into emergency surgery or you will not live. And then he said one more thing. He's like, Lisa, I know that you have been crying out to God to take away your pain, but I personally am very thankful God didn't answer that prayer because if God would have taken away the pain, we wouldn't have kept running tests. We would have sent you home. Your colon would have ruptured and you would have died. Wow. I remember right before the anesthesia took over as I was being wheeled down the hallway, you know, it's like, I don't know if I'm going to wake up from the surgery or not because a lot of damage had been done and the doctors weren't sure. But I remember having this thought, God loves me too much to answer my prayer at any other time than the right time and in any other way than the right way. And that's true, not just of our physical pain, but any pain, emotional, spiritual, whatever we're going through. So it really helped me understand how to trust God more. You know, I actually, I have all those pages marked, Lisa. It's, it's uh, first of all, just a, a staggering story, but one of the best examples I've ever read or heard of, of where there's a direct connection between pain and its purpose in the immediate. Because you're right, if you had just woken up and felt better and that had continued, you know, we wouldn't be having this conversation. So um, an affair in the marriage uh, of your husband of how many years had you and Art been married at that time? At that time, we had been married 21, 22 years. Yeah. Yeah. So over 20 years. And it was just so unexpected. I mean, if you would have brought all of our friends and family over and lined all the couples up in a line and said, who do you think will walk through infidelity in the next couple of years? I don't think they would have picked me and art. And so, you know, it was something I always feared uh, Mm. because I hear about it happening to other people. We had friends that had walked through this. Certainly um, being in ministry, I heard many, many stories, but, you know, I felt like I'd done that we had done all the right things. And, you know, we want life to be as predictable as a math equation, like two plus two should equal four. Right. And so if you do the date nights and you go to the conferences and you go to church as a family and you eat dinner together and, you know, you pray together and all of that, you know, you, you feel almost like, okay, we've done everything right. So we should have a right outcome. Now, now please hear me. No marriage is perfect. And we certainly didn't do everything right. But mm-hmm. I feel like we're building block foundation of a great relationship. And um, yeah, it was complicated when it when it fell apart. So I want to I want to come back to that. But I mean, so there was the infidelity, um, the problem with your colon, which was life threatening and excruciating. Uh, but that wasn't it. There was something else that happened to in your life in the last three years. 
Yeah. So um, I kept it private for 18 months, what Art and I were walking through, because I didn't want to invite the weight of public opinion into our very private pain. But after 18 months, it appeared as if things were not going to get better between us. Um, We were pursuing reconciliation. And then um, there were some other choices that were made that were outside of my desire for reconciliation. And so then the rumor mill started. So the story was going to be told either through the rumor mill or, you know, I could get out in front of the story and just let people know what was happening. So in June of 2017, I posted a blog um, letting people know that I didn't think that we were going to make it, um, asking for prayer. And um, that was the worst day of my entire life. I I can't even express to you the depth of pain and sorrow that I felt that day. So that was in June. Then I took some time off because I just needed to heal. And um, so since I had extra time, I thought, well, let me just go make all the doctor appointments for all the stuff you're supposed to do. But when you're busy traveling, you don't always do all those appointments. So one of those appointments was for a mammogram and I was not due for a mammogram. I had so many clear tests that, um, it, it, I could have put it off another year, but I went ahead and did it because I had time to do it. And that mammogram came back with some concerning, but not overly alarming results. So they wanted me to go back and do a second test. And then they wanted me to go in for a biopsy And then in September of 2017, um, I was diagnosed with breast cancer, which, you know, just seemed like impossible. Did it seem cruel? Yeah, honestly. I mean, it, it was complicated. It was very complicated. I was just, I think, and I think all of my friends walking through this journey with me just were left a little speechless. It was unexpected and we couldn't understand it, you know? So I remember (laughs) after that, I was like, okay, Lord, you really, you're going to have a lot of people really angry with you about this one because I mean, it just seemed like hurt upon hurt, devastation upon devastation. But I, I remember there was, there was a moment where I had to make the decision to process this through fate. And so I remember sitting there thinking, okay, if I process this with my feelings, it's too much. I really do feel like I'm living Job's story, you know? And I know Job's story, when we read it in the Bible, turns out okay, but my story does not feel like it's going to turn out okay. And it's in those middle moments where things can get very, very complicated when we're trying to process it. And I'm an over-processor anyways. I don't know if you've ever studied the Enneagram, but I'm a one on the Enneagram. Okay. Overthink everything. (laughs) And so I remember overthinking this for sure, but I decided I have to make God and his goodness the starting place as I process this, because if I don't, I feel like I could go to a very dark place where God does seem suspicious to me. How did, okay. I got to ask you about that. Like, how did you, how did you catch yourself and get to that place? Because I think I've met, and I'm sure you've met so many people who have gone through less, but they went to that dark place. They, you know, my, my, you know, our ministry 
is filled with people who went to that dark place. And some of them come back, some of them don't. Sometimes you meet people on the way back. Sometimes you just meet them one day in everyday life and they're like, oh, let me tell you what I used to believe. Um, How did you catch yourself in that moment? Well, when somebody's in that dark place, I think people's tendency is to start trying to explain away what's happening for God, right? Okay. It's like, let me put a bumper sticker statement on it. Let me give you just the right Bible verse. And people feel a lot of pressure to say the right thing to help you get out of the darkness that you're in. And what I would say is God doesn't want to be explained away. He wants to be invited in. And so if you have a friend that's in that dark place, the very best thing you can do is just go sit with them and do what the Bible says. Weep with them when they weep. Rejoice with them when they rejoice. But your presence, if you know the Lord, your presence will be a gift that they need in that moment. Your preaching in that moment will probably not be seen as much as a gift. And so I didn't need people preaching at me. There was nothing someone could say to bring me back. I just had to be surrounded by friends who would, I could say to them, and I led the conversation, do you think that God's mad at me? Very understandable question. And they would say back, no, he's definitely not mad at you. Okay. Do you think that God's forgotten me? And they would just simply say, nope, he has not forgotten you. I would say, do you think it's ever going to get better? And they would say, absolutely, it's going to get better. You see, they didn't have these big things where they explained what God was doing. They just reminded me who God was. He is faithful, but they didn't even say that. They just answered my questions according to the faithfulness that they had in God. Because sometimes when your faith is slipping, you just need to be able to be surrounded by people. You can go stand on their faith when you feel like you're, you can't really figure out your own. So asking those simple questions and having them give me back faith-filled answers, not messages, not sermons, but faith-filled answers made a big difference to me. So with me, I started with what I knew to be true. I knew God was good. This didn't feel good at all. So where could some evidence of goodness be found? Well, my marriage falling apart, Again, in June of 2017, after I thought we were about to go through reconciliation, I thought we were about to renew our vows. We've been going through this a really long time, right? But then everything fell apart again. But that forced me to go have a doctor appointment that allowed the doctors to find cancer. The doctors said they found it soon enough to where with surgery, my prognosis looked very, very good. And in the end, they were able to do the surgery and... Uh, Now I'm cancer free. And I would have never gotten such a good prognosis without an early diagnosis. I wouldn't have gotten the early diagnosis without my marriage falling apart again. So you tell me my marriage falling apart again. Was it the worst thing that ever happened? Or did God take that terrible situation and use it for good because he is good? And so you see, it's like all in how we how we train our brain to process things from the vantage point that God is good. We just have to sit and and find the goodness of God, even in some of these practical aspects. Um, did I want to have cancer? No. Did I want my bar- marriage to fall apart? No. Did I want to have the devastation of 
all these events, plus having to step aside in ministry and take a season off. No, I didn't want any of that. But was God good in those lonely, painful, horrific moments? A hundred percent he was. You, you describe things so well in the book. You're a brilliant writer. And um, I, I can't help but think that there must have been a moment where you thought, this is the opposite of what I've given my life to. Like, I'm supposed to be the Proverbs 31 wife. And here I am with my marriage falling apart. My husband, who kind of walked out on me. Did you have that moment? And how did you process that? I love this question because I think a lot of people would assume, and I probably even had this thought too, um, Mm. that Lisa, you know, you being president of Proverbs 31 Ministries sort of set you up for this kind of attack, you know, like you were, you were set up for this kind of attack. So man, being in ministry is really hard because the enemy went after your family, which was based on the ministry that you do, the most hurtful thing for the enemy to do. Mm-hmm. But um, we have to remember, God saw that I was going to walk through this before he ever called me to be in this ministry. So I think of it a little bit differently. I think what a gracious, good, loving God that we serve, that he put me in this ministry all those years ago, knowing what I would eventually walk through so that I would be surrounded by people in ministry and teachings and preachings and backstage access to, to people who could help me and all of that stuff. I mean, God is so good. God doesn't need my marriage to stay intact to make him credible for ministry. You see what I'm saying? I, I do. God God placed me in ministry knowing what I would eventually walk through, but not just for my sake. I believe it's because he heard the cries of so many people and he knew they would drown in their own tears if not for seeing a glimmer of hope in my tears. So God didn't cause this, but he did allow it. And, um, yeah, I would have never been brave enough to choose to this journey. I, I would have never, ever done it on my own. So God allowed it, though. And I, and I, I really feel like God has not cursed me with this. He has entrusted me with this. So even though I would not, never, ever want anyone to have to walk through this, I will be a faithful steward of even this. And so will my husband, which is a whole nother aspect because, you know, wow. I mean, a lot of people want to say that I'm courageous for giving him a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance, a fifth chance, you know, because this, the past three years, it's not been a straight line toward redemption. It has been a horrifically messy, brutal, brutal situation, but I'm not really the only courageous one here. My husband has come back. And I would think after all that he chose, it would be so hard to come back. So you want to talk about courage? That takes courage. It takes courage to surrender to the Lord 
after all the choices that he's made. It takes courage to look at our friends and our family in the face and say, I'm sorry. It takes courage to go through therapy and counseling and to surrender yourself to the healing process. It takes courage to be a man of redemption. So yeah, he's, he's pretty courageous. Lisa, that's just incredible to hear you process that. Um, I don't think guys process their emotions particularly well. Uh, that has been a journey for me. Uh, but one of the things as I read the book, and I mean, I've, I followed your story too. I read that blog post the day that you came out with it. And there'd be so many leaders, and I know there's leaders who are listening with way fewer difficulties than you've endured over the last few years, who would say, but Lisa, I, f- I feel so much shame over whatever that is. I just, I'm terrified. Did you have to grapple with shame or humiliation? Like how did that part of the journey unfold for you? Or, or was that an issue? Yeah. I mean, for sure. I, I liked being the, you know, Bible teacher in a situation, you know, I, I liked, um, and was so thankful for, um, my books doing well, being a New York times bestselling author. You know, I liked being president of Proverbs 31 ministries. Um, I didn't like being the broken girl with the broken body and broken emotions and broken marriage and, you know, so yeah, I, I don't know if I would necessarily have said I'm dealing with shame. Um, but yeah, there was definitely threads of that woven through what I was dealing. I was just dealing with utter heartbreak and just um, disillusionment, extreme disappointment of just not understanding uh the layers and the impact of, of what I was having to walk through. It was just crazy, you know? So yeah, for sure. And, you know, certainly um, probably even more painful than my dealing with the shame or the uncertainty. It was watching my kids all process that too, you know, because um, they have and still do respected their dad as the, 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 the spiritual leader of our family. I mean, in 2016, three of our five kids got married and it was at the beginning of 2016 that I found out I was having the affair. So it was a, it was a year of extreme highs and extreme lows. And our family was processing that all together. It was brutal. It was hard. And yeah, I think we all had to deal with elements of shame, but, um, certainly arts had to deal with it too, you know? Um, and he probably, I I've told people I would rather carry the weight of a cancer diagnosis than carry the weight of shame. So hit watching him having to process his own shame and, and him having to come face to face with what he did was brutal. Um, But that's why in the very beginning of the book, I talk about when your life gets broken and whether you are the the one who got hurt or the one who caused the hurt, um, sometimes you've got broken pieces. You can glue them back together. God's light can shine through the brokenness. We all sing Kumbaya and we love that. That's awesome, right? But sometimes you look around and the brokenness either that's been thrust on you or that you yourself caused Sometimes the brokenness, there's there's not broken pieces. You look around and it's a shattering of your life that there's nothing but dust. You can't glue dust. 
So I wrote in the book about reading, feeling that way, feeling like my life is nothing but dust now. And I don't know what to do with it. You can't glue dust. I just, it's so hopeless feeling. And, And yeah, I guess elements of shame in that too. But out of all the ingredients in the world that God could have chosen to make his favorite creation, mankind, In Genesis 2, we find God choosing dust, and he picks up the dust, and from nothing, he breathes life into something. So dust doesn't mean an end. Dust is often what must be present for the brand new to begin. So I say that for anyone listening who's dealing with shame, either shame because of choices you've made or shame because somebody else's choices has has made you feel so less than. I just, I just say, listen to my story with great hope and know that shame is Satan's signature. He's the one that wants you locked in shame. God, our God speaks a language of freedom. The first words God ever spoke to man was you are free. After mm. breathed into that dust and he, he made new life. The first words that the enemy spoke in reciting what God said. If you look at Genesis 3, when when the enemy is talking to Eve and then he goes to quote God, he quotes God's first three words as you must not. Very interesting, right? Hmm. So you see the enemy is a you must not enemy, but our God, you are free. Now he gives us restrictions for our protection, but I just speak that into someone's soul today. Dust does not signify your end. It's often what must be present for the brand new to begin. Oh, man, this is so, uh, so rich, Lisa. And thank you. Uh, Your book really speaks to me. I know it's speaking to probably eventually millions of people. Um, But I want to go back to something you write about and something you hinted at already in this interview. And you said, particularly the day you posted that blog in July or whenever it was of 2017, the gossip. And you had friends who came and sat with you, and then you had friends who didn't. They did the opposite. Do you want to tell us about that? And Because uh, I think we've all had it to one extent or another, or participated, unfortunately, to one extent or another. What was that like? Well, first of all, I, I want to say I have great compassion for the friends that didn't come sit with me. Great, great, great compassion because I understand that they were processing, personalizing the hurt of what I was going through in their own life and projecting some of their own fears into the situation. So I really don't hold um, those people accountable that, um, and I don't hold them guilty for things that were said that were hurtful or mean or rude or whatever, you know, there's a whole list of words we could use because it's what they did or didn't do as hurtful as it may have been to me. um, I have such great compassion on them because they were processing their own fear. They, they, I don't believe any of them wanted to do the wrong thing. I think maybe some of them were protecting themselves because they were afraid that this might shine light on some choices they were making that was that were very hurtful, or they simply didn't know what to say, or they this opened up 
an arena of fear in their heart. So I just want to say all of that because yes, some people said some really hurtful things and did some really hurtful, um, hurtful things, but, um, boy, I have a lot of compassion on them because, um, you know, they were just dealing with their own stuff and you're dealing with your own stuff is hard, but the people who did come and sit with me, you know, they did one of the best things that friends could do. They prayed more words over me than they spoke to me or spoke about me. And Mm -hmm. everybody needs friends in their life that, um, that are that committed and that really believe in the power of prayer. I think as Christians, we kind of all know it's like, oh yeah, we're supposed to pray for people. But, um, a lot of times we just find ourselves um, saying, oh, yeah, man, I'll pray for you. And then if we do pray for him, it's like, okay, God, you need to fix this and this and this. And we make lists of suggestions to God, right? When in reality, I think God just wants us to open our heart and say, God, just help me love them where they're at. And God, help us link arms with them so they can be strong enough and courageous enough to trade their will for your will. And this process is hard as hard as, as messy as it gets. I'm going to keep bringing them a casserole. I'm going to keep going to put gas in their car. I'm going to keep helping watch their kids. And I am going to pray more words for them than I speak to them or about them. And uh, man, those are terrific friends to have. Hmm. How did you handle the critics? I mean, did you read some of those blog posts or, you know, the, the, the posts on social? Or do you just ignore that? Like, how do you not let that bring you down? Um, well, they can't bring you down if they don't have access to you. And so I didn't, I didn't read them. So I'm still kind of (laughs) operating in this Pollyanna view of like, man, this is pretty amazing. Not a lot of people said too much ugly stuff. Uh, but I also don't Google my name. I don't, I don't go shopping for pain. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Shopping for pain. Yeah. I just never heard anyone say that. I mean, so you know, I, I'm sure that some stuff exists. Um, I was pretty thankful though. I mean, my staff was really good about keeping me off the computer. So they would print really kind things that people said. And, um, when people had hard questions, they were willing to have the hard conversation. So it wasn't like everybody was ignoring it, but you know, some people just out of their own desire for, writing a headline and an article that creates traction for their platform, you know, they're, I mean, they have their own motivations, their own reasons, but they they have to answer to God for that. But fear only has as much access to affect us as we give it access to our heart. So I just chose to not give it access to my heart. (laughs) That's That's good advice. Um, You raise a really helpful distinction between things, and I I don't know whether I got the terminology quite right, but in my notes, personal, private, and secret. And you said in the book that there are details you're going to share, and there are some things you're just not, and some things you'll never share. I think that's a really good distinction, particularly in a social media age where people sometimes share nothing or they share everything inappropriately. Seems to be a little bit on, on the polls. Can you walk us through um, personal, private, and secret? And I I thought those were really helpful distinctions. Yeah. um, So if we're going to be thought leaders, the very best place for us to start is to lead our own thoughts first, right? And Mm -hmm. so 
um, I think it's really important when you go through something hard to understand that um, if you're an authentic person, I think you kind of feel compelled to not keep things secret. Um, but you have to remember there's a big difference between secrecy and privacy. Secrecy is keeping things hidden so that the sin behind it can be perpetuated. Privacy is not keeping things hidden for the for the sake of secrecy, but keeping things hidden for the sake of healing. So I chose to be private um, with some of the details because I wanted to leave God room to move. And I wanted my kids to be able to read about this 10 years from now and not be horrified by some of the details. And I recognize that while the name Lisa Turkhurst in some people's minds might be a brand. It's never been a brand to me. It's my personal identity. It's my personal legacy. It's my personal assignment. And so I never wanted the details of our story to go out and satisfy people's curiosity and that they get so bloated with the junk food of curious details that they miss the nourishment of the beautiful God lessons woven throughout this story. So I chose to let the story simply be the bare bones backdrop of this story, of this book, of this message, so that the real story, God's lessons could be front and center and people could get nourished for their own life in the lessons that, um, that God taught and the biblical teaching. So it was important for me to tell enough of the story though, so that people could identify with the depth of hurt. No one will be able to put this book down and go, well, Lisa's never experienced hurt. Like I've experienced hurt. So, you know, they negate the teaching. Um, I think when you know, somebody has experienced a depth of pain that rivals your own pain, even if the circumstances are different, it makes what they say, their teaching and their advice more believable and trustworthy. So it was a delicate road to walk for sure. Um, I I do think it's important though, again, talking about how courageous art has been um, in walking his path of redemption. He read every word of this book and he had the opportunity to change anything he wanted to change. And yet even things that were hard for him to admit he left him in the book. And again, I just think that's pretty miraculous. Yeah. Yeah. You, um, you lead a a major ministry, as we've already said, you have a staff of 60, six to 8 million people a day who access your content, yet you took a break. Um, I want to know, how did you know when to step back and how did you know you were ready to step in? Because I think that's a hard line to find in leadership. Uh, There are leaders who are leading who should have stepped back. And then there are some who have stepped back who should be in. Where? How did you figure out that line for you? Yeah, I wish so much it was like a formula that I could give somebody. And I wish I felt like I did it perfectly. I don't know that I did, Carrie. You know, Mm -hmm. this situations like this, they're not really like, here's the formula. So let's, you know... Uh, this is the time for, I mean, I wish the Bible was that specific, right? But it's not. 
And so for me, this became not so much a problem to solve, but attention to manage, you know, I, I had to, there were still some things that my team needed from me, even during the sabbatical that um, I did what I could. So instead of it being like this big planned out time frame, it was a day by day um, initiative. I did get wise people around me and I let them speak truth into me. I didn't step back into doing ministry until those people around me who were wise, who I trusted, who were daily invested in seeing me and interacting with me. Um, you know, it was a it was a group decision for sure. But I think where some of us get in trouble as leaders, we're so used to being the one to tell other people what to do. It's hard for us to step into a situation where we kind of let other people boss us around a little bit. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And so not that people around me were bossy, they weren't, but I had to humble myself and let them reflect um, to me what was, what was good. And, um, and I'm thankful I did that. But again, I don't necessarily look at, at what I did as, as the perfect model. So you talk in the book about keeping lines of communication open in your marriage, but there are husbands who have porn addictions listening, some wives too, wives who are having an affair, leaders who are having an emotional affair. I just read about one again this morning with someone at work or they're hiding a drug or a gambling addiction. They're terrified to tell anybody. Any advice? Well, first of all, I just want to say it's more prevalent than you think. You're going to feel utterly alone in your dysfunction, you're going to feel utterly alone, like you're the only person that's ever made this choice. And so you're going to feel like, you know, there's no help for someone who should have made different choices, who made these choices. I mean, there's so many things that the enemy is going to try to attack you with. But I would, A, number one, get a Christian counselor who is trained in your exact issue and get them on board ASAP and let mm. that counselor help you navigate what's really going on, um, what some good options are for help and for pursuing healing, um, who needs to be told what and when, and, um, and, and start there start by bringing that that darkness into some kind of light but you know they're trained to help you and so as crazy as it sounds you know when i started going through this i didn't tell a lot of people but i did get the help of two trained christian counselors that were tremendous one of those counselors had a very specific degree in um, helping people navigate the exact issues that we were walking through. And um, so that was, that was chosen with great intentionality. But please, please, please start doing your research and find that person, that trained Christian counselor who can help you. I want to talk a little bit as we wrap up today, Lisa, about your writing, if you're willing, and your ministry. You have a really deep personal connection with your audience and an incredibly loyal audience. Can you tell us what are some keys to doing that over the years? Like how to know what to share with your audience, what not to uh, I mean, there's a lot of people listening who are saying that's they're they're trying to connect authentically with an audience, but 
I, I think you're one of the best at it. So can you share a little bit about what you've learned in that area? Thank you, Carrie. Your words are so kind. Um, yeah. So whenever I set out to communicate a message, whether it's in the written form or the spoken form, I don't start with what I want to say. That's a tempting place to start. Mm. I start by paying attention to questions people are asking and problems people are having that they're searching for a solution for. And the reason I start there is because that's my definition of a felt need. Um, A felt need is a problem that someone is having or question they're asking. And so whenever I write something, I don't want people to go, oh, I should read that one day. I want my books to feel so urgent and top of mind topically to people that they go, oh, I have to read that book today. And the only way to do it is if they feel the need for your message. And the only way for them to feel the need for the message is for you to tap into that problem that they're having, that question that they're asking, and provide a solution or an answer to it. You don't have to provide the ultimate solutions and answers. But if you just get people a little further down the path, then that's very, very helpful. So where my audience felt needs match my felt needs, a problem I'm having, a question I'm asking, that's where that beautiful connection happens. So, and and I would also say one more thing too. Um, I think a lot of people set out to write a book and they make their topic so broad so that they can write enough words about the book. But I challenge people writing messages Make your topic very narrow so that your message can become the go-to book for that one specific topic. So for example, it's not supposed to be this way. The one word that entire message is built around is disappointment because I don't want my book to be put in big, tall stacks of every other book written for a Christian audience, a Christian perspective. I want my book to be the go-to resource for this topic. And so that's the best advice I would give. Hmm. How do you figure out what your audience is struggling with? I I pay attention. So um, I'll kind of feel God stirring a problem in my life that needs to be addressed or a question I have that I'm looking for an answer for. And then I start paying attention to social media comments, blog comments, conversation I have around a dinner table, um, coffee shop conversations. I pay attention. So my first... Uh, six months process in writing a book is not writing at all. It, it, it's listening. Hmm. Uh, that's good. And that's where you get your, you know, talk content and your blog content as well. How do you see like when you, cause you do some blogging, you do a lot of speaking and you also write books. So do, how did the, th- how, how do your different uh, media interrelate in your mind? Well, a lot of my content starts on Instagram because that's what I carry around on my phone. So I'll have an idea and um, I'll write something little and I'll test it out in Instagram. And I, I, if I see that that helps people, I pay attention to that. But all of my ministry communication starts in the written form first. Because that's where I feel like God has uniquely gifted me to process my thoughts the best in the written form. And then it spills over into other medium, other other ways of getting the message out. Hmm. Um, More than a few preachers listening, I want you to advise preachers. 
you've sat through a lot of sermons. You go to a great church with a fantastic preacher. Um, but I want you to think about the wider church. If there was some way that communicators could better connect with the congregations they serve, what, what would you advise us to do? I would say make it one of your goals that every single person in that audience, if they were walking out of the audience and, and filling out a survey, answering the question, what is your message about? Make it your goal that 90% of those people write the exact same answer. That's very yeah. difficult to do, but it takes intentionality. You, when you get up to communicate, tell people um, exactly what you're trying to accomplish. Their time is so valuable. So tell them, I bet X percentage of you are dealing with this issue. Today, we're going to tackle this issue. I'm going to unpack this issue 360 degrees all the way around. I am going to give you biblical references. I'm going to give you personal examples. I'll give you a personal admission of how I struggle with this issue. But today, the issue we're tackling is this. And if you can move this forward in your life, your life is going to get better because of A, B, and C. But again, what we're tackling today is this. And I promise you, if you'll do that with great intentionality, people will leave. They will feel like it was a great investment of their time. Everybody will know how to answer that question. What was that message about? And that's the only way, if it's done with great intentionality and people get this sense of momentum from your message, then you have a greater opportunity to unleash the power of conversation because everybody wants to talk about something great they just heard or read. And the only way for you to unleash the power of conversation, get more people at your church and interested in your ministry is that they know exactly what you preached about last Sunday. Well, I, uh, it would be great if we got a chance to do this again, because I feel like I now have a thousand questions I still want to <laughs> ask you, but we're pushing an hour. That's much better than you saying, okay, well, now that I'm effectively bored to tears, let's wrap this one up. <laughs> No, there's so much, uh, honestly, Lisa, there's so much leadership. I, I wanted to share the story of the book, which, by the way, you should read it. And I'll just say something to male readers. You're probably like, I'm not going to read a Proverbs 31 book. You, ne you need to buy this book or you need to steal it off your wife's nightstand and read it. It's really good. And you're a brilliant writer. I mean, just so, so good at your craft, which would be where I want to take it next time and talk about leadership and all these things, communication. But, and we can cut this part out if you're not comfortable with it, but you told me something really special that's going to happen tomorrow, the day after we recorded this. And you give a little update at the very end of the book saying, hey, this is where Art and I are at as this thing goes to press. But do you want to update us? Are you comfortable with that, telling us uh, what's happening tomorrow when we record this? Yeah, sure thing. So um, on July 4th of this year, after years of counseling and therapy and a lot of hard work on Art's part and a lot of hard work on my part, July 4th, um, Art asked if I would consider renewing our vows and marrying him all over again. Um, and I said, yes. And so tomorrow, December the 11th, um, we will be doing just that. It's amazing. You showed me your living room. It's all set up, uh, and you're going to renew your vows tomorrow, which is great. This will air in January, but I just want you to know, I am so excited to hear that story of redemption. 
That's amazing, Lisa. Me too. As someone who's lived this story, walked this story, resisted this story, crawled through this story um, to have this moment of redemption, this second chance at um, a lifetime commitment with art. Um, it's something I'll never, ever take for granted. I'm so thankful. Hmm. That's great. Well, people are going to want to connect with you. What's the easiest way, Lisa? So my favorite place to connect is on Instagram. Absolutely. You can just go to at Lisa Turkers on Instagram. My name is all kind of complicated. So L-Y-S-A-T-E-R-K-E-U-R-S-T. Um, but you can also find me on Facebook. You can find me through the Proverbs 31 website um, or on the pages of my book. It's not supposed to be this way. That's great. Lisa, thank you so much. I so appreciate it. Thank you, Carrie. It's been a joy to be with you. Well, that was a powerful conversation. Lisa, thank you so much. If you want more, including transcripts, maybe there's a particular area you want to go back and just, you know, search or find or zero in on or discuss with your team, head on over to the show notes. You'll find them at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 238, or just go to leadlikeneverbefore.com. That's the easy one to go to. Type in Lisa Turkhurst in the, and it's Lisa with a Y, Turkhurst in the search window and you'll find the show notes there. Uh, we got everything for you. Everything we talked about, all the links to everything, including links to Rethink Leadership, which you are going to want to get to before it sells out. Um, it is a premier leadership event for senior pastors, campus pastors, and executive pastors only happening in Atlanta, May 1st through 3rd. Got a powerful lineup this year, but even better than the lineup a chance to really drill down on what's going on in leadership to get your questions answered and so much more. Register before it's too late. Get the best rates at rethinkleadership.com. And remember, I got something free for you right now. So while you're at it, head on over to thehighimpactleader.com and let's get your 2019 sorted out before it gets away on you. We are back next week with a brand new episode, of course. In fact, we've got six a month now. And coming up, we've got Ian Morgan Cron. He is the Enneagram guy who wrote the powerful book, The Road Back to You with Suzanne Stabile. Uh, Gary Chapman, Frank Beeler, Rich Birch, Judd Wilhite, John Ortberg, Annie F. Downs, and so many more. But next week, it's John Gordon. John trains with uh, professional sports teams and consults with Fortune 500 companies, and it was one of the leaders on positive thinking, but it didn't always go that way. In fact, when he was 29, his wife said, I love you, but I'm leaving you because I can't stand you because you're so negative. Do you ever do that? You just kind of dump on your spouse when you get home? Yeah, not a good idea. He tells that story. And we talk about how to handle the negative voices in your head, negativity in your organization, and how to stay positive. Here's an excerpt. And I asked them, does negativity come from you? And they said, yeah, yeah. I go, really? Who would ever choose to have a negative thought? Would you ever choose a negative thought? No one would ever choose one. So it's not coming from you. It's coming from the enemy. It's coming from a spiritual place. It's a spiritual battle. And once you understand that, you can armor yourself with the truth, with these positive words that help you overcome the lies that come in all the time. So that's next week on the podcast. You get that automatically for free if you subscribe. If you haven't done that yet, maybe you're a brand new listener, just hit subscribe. I only ever listen to the podcast I subscribe to and I subscribe to dozens. So hopefully if this is helpful, you can do that for free. Thank you for getting the word out, for sharing on social. And hey, for those of you who have listened to the very end, a lot of people say, hey, where can I connect with you on social? You know you know where? 
Um, you can connect with me best. Well, I'm on Facebook, Twitter. I'm on all the major channels. But you know where I actually hang out? Instagram. Uh, and particularly on Insta Stories. Have a lot of fun there. So uh, look me up there. Uh, you'll see sort of a narrative of what happens every day in my life. And we can connect even more. Hey, thanks so much for listening, guys. Really appreciate it. We are back with a fresh episode next Tuesday. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.